When I think about the fact that I used to get in my car as a depressed and anxious young girl and drive to a therapist's office, I honestly cannot believe it. The irony that people who suffer from depression have to will themselves to get out of bed, battle with things like parking and traffic and waiting rooms only to talk to a therapist for an hour and then have to do it all again just to get home. Thank you so much, BetterHelp, for sponsoring this episode. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide variety of issues. To get started, you just have to answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy and that way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. I am offering my listeners 10% off their first month at BetterHelp. So get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash only alchemy. That's betterhelp.com slash only alchemy for 10% off. Okay, we're recording. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you? Hello, I'm doing well. How are you? Good. I'm so excited to be chatting with you. Uh, Elizabeth is a marriage and family therapist who I actually discovered on TikTok during the Amber Heard Johnny Depp case. Yeah. (laughs) Exciting times. You had some... Yeah, you had some great content during that um, case and... I just started following your social media and then I really loved what you had to say about a lot of topics. So I was intrigued to see what I can share with my listeners and your knowledge on specifically relationships. Um, But before we jumped on the call, I was chatting with you a little bit about some of the terms that get tossed around a lot, especially on TikTok and social media that are just incorrectly used and I thought you would be the perfect person to straighten out some of those terms for people yes happy to happy to clear that up there's been a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding on social media for sure yeah so let's I guess start with the main one that I think gets used, misused a lot, which is gaslighting. What is gaslighting? So gaslighting actually comes from a 1938 play called Gaslight, where a man um, wants to steal from his wife. So he starts doing things around their apartment to make her think that she's going crazy. And one of those includes like, doing something with the lights where the the gas lights are dimmed and then he'll like walk upstairs so that she's hearing footsteps and he tells her that she's hearing things. So he starts doing things to lead her to actually think that she's going insane so that he can take her money. So that's where the term actually originated from. How it's used now, which is incorrect, is just anytime someone has a disagreement, they'll say, oh, you're gaslighting me. And that's not the real form of gaslighting. So if if you're truly being gaslighted or gaslit, um, it's a emotional manipulation where someone is trying to convince you that your version of reality is insane. And if you actually think the way that you do or feel the way that you do, you must be crazy. And so it's really more about that than like a disagreement or a different interpretation or a different opinion on something that happened. 
So people can have a different interpretation of a series of events. Like if I'm fighting with my husband about something and we disagree on how something went down, that's not gaslighting, that's a disagreement. But if he were to say to me, oh my gosh, you, you feel that way? That's insane. That is, you're so sensitive. You're overreacting. This is not a big deal. You're being so silly. You're being so overreact, like overreactive. That would be gaslighting, right? Because it's making me think, oh, am I, am I crazy? Am I totally off here? Because I, I don't think I'm crazy, but this is making me feel like I'm, I'm insane. And that's the true form of gaslighting, if that makes sense. So it's really a narcissistic trait. But what we see on social media all the time is it being thrown around whenever two people disagree on a concept or an idea or the meaning of something. Does that make sense? Do you have any <laughs> clarifying questions? Yeah. So can you accidentally gaslight somebody or is it really very intentional as to you having an end goal? That's a great question. Both. It absolutely can be accidental. When narcissists do it, they're not, or people with narcissistic personality disorder or people with narcissistic traits, they are not often intentionally thinking, I'm going to manipulate this person into seeing it my way. It's just their natural way of behaving in the world because they lack empathy. So it's really hard for them to even imagine another way of experiencing something than their own. So for them, it's like, well, you must be crazy if you think that because the way I see it and the way I feel is the correct way. So I wouldn't say that it's necessarily on accident or on purpose. It's just how they think. But for people who are not dealing with narcissistic traits, you can absolutely do it on accident or you can do it on purpose. I've, I've definitely seen people be purposefully manipulative because they you know, want the power in the relationship and they refuse to admit any responsibility of their own. They don't, they don't want to see it from another person's side of, of things. Um, but it can also be done on accident if you're just not aware what those terms, like speaking that way, how that can affect someone else, then you could totally do it on accident. If you're just so caught up in your emotions and you say, why are you being so sensitive? This is so silly, you know, or you're overreacting or that's crazy if you think that. that those are things that people can absolutely say and often do say in fights and they're thrown around and they can unintentionally gaslight someone, if that makes sense. But to, to throw that back in their face, say you're, you're gaslighting me is maybe not the most productive way to deal with it in a relationship. Um, so that's where I think people need to be a little careful about how they throw that word around because it is a term that's referring to like an emotional abuse in its, in its truest sense. Yeah. So is there like a major red flag or like a tell sign if you're in a relationship? Cause I know abuse can happen slowly and sometimes can creep up on you so much so that you don't even realize that it's happening. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm curious, is there like, you know, a red flag where you can sort of go, okay, maybe they're not unintentionally doing this and this is more than just flippantly saying those things. Yeah. I think that a couple ways to, to look out for that are if, first of all, every time you bring up something to your partner that's bothering you about their behavior, you end up apologizing at the end for bringing it up. So the issue that you are having a hard time with is never addressed. 
and they get so upset and it flips around and you end up apologizing for, for being upset. That's a, that's a red flag. Um, however, if that is happening and you talk to your partner about it and you say, hey, I've noticed like whenever I'm having a hard time with something, I feel like we don't actually end up talking about the issue and I end up apologizing. Or if you point out to your partner, hey, whenever I say that I'm feeling a certain way, you're really invalidating and you tell me that, or I feel invalidated. It feels like you're telling me that my emotions are crazy or that they're not valid and that's really hurtful. So could we maybe work on that? And do you mind like trying to see things from my point of view and validating the emotion at least, even if you don't agree with what I'm saying? Because some people truly aren't aware. Like I said, you know, it could be unintentional. This is just the way that they've learned how to interact or the way that they think about things. But if there's no change, if there's no willingness to change and there's no real change in those areas and it's a pattern and you've had these conversations about working on being more validating and um, hearing out the other side and not saying those, those triggering terms for people that make them think they're being gaslighted or make them feel gaslit, then if there's no change, then I would say that's another red flag because they're, they're not interested in learning how to behave differently. They're not interested in learning how to not gaslight you. They're, they're enjoying the power and they want to keep, keep it. Interesting. So this wasn't one of the terms that I was going to bring up, but when you were talking about the uh, being apologetic, when you're the one that's bringing up the issue, that makes me think of like people pleasing tendencies where people are just always so apologetic for asking for anything like just mm -hmm. their needs in general yeah um and i'm wondering like how so for i'll just use a personal example because this is something like my husband and i go into sometimes with he has that tendency for people pleasing so <laughs> excuse me it just choked <laughs> so <laughs> Um, in our discussions, I'll often be like, are you actually, like, I will ask him like genuinely, are you being authentic right now? Or are you trying to not like hurt my feelings? Like you can, like, I will encourage him to kind of just go there, just say it, like, just blurt it out, whatever it is. Just don't worry. I can handle it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if someone's being apologetic and they're a people pleaser in that situation mm -hmm. because I know a lot of like empathetic people can get into relationships with narcissists. Mm -hmm. um, how do you navigate that? Um, from which side? Just from learning how to not be a people pleaser anymore, the, basically? Uh, well, the, the apologizing for something that you've brought up. So say you're bringing up something with your yeah. partner that's bothering you and you're the one that ends up apologizing Yeah. to try and differentiate between someone using that against you. And that's just maybe something that you have to work on. Yeah, there's, you have to build the self-awareness. And I think the first step is is thinking about and noticing when you're having those conversations, am I doing that? Do I end up apologizing because I'm so uncomfortable just having conflict that I end up apologizing because now we've had this kind of uncomfortable conversation and maybe people got upset and I feel bad about that. So I'm sorry that I even brought it up because it makes me uncomfortable to even have these conversations. So having the self-awareness of, is that what's happening here? 
or am I kind of being manipulated into not having any needs? Because you're right, it could be that I'm with someone who's narcissistic, who isn't really interested in meeting my needs and doesn't care to see things from my Mm -hmm. side. Or it could be, I'm so uncomfortable creating conflict and I just want everyone else to be happy that I am sorry I have any needs and let me just lay down (laughs) so um, you can get your needs met and who cares about me? As long as you're happy, I'm fine. So I think it first starts with self-awareness and really noticing, do you feel like your needs are being met? Do you feel like your partner's interested in learning how to meet your needs? And if you bring them up, are they willing and do they show meaningful progress? And do you feel guilty for having needs um, because of like, have you always felt that way? Or do you really only feel that way with this person? That would be another way to tell if it's your people pleasing or if it's the relationship. Interesting. Okay. So it does depend on whether it's that person only, or if you can openly talk to other people about that same subject. Yeah, like if you go to your your mom or your friend and you have a problem in the relationship and you're fine asking for your needs to be met and you don't feel any guilt about it, but it's only with your partner that you feel like you shouldn't have any needs and end up apologizing for having any, then that would definitely be a red flag. And I think people can gain a lot of value from thinking back to their childhood and were you the people pleaser in your family? Were you the one that was always trying to absorb all of the stress and energy and just make everyone happy? And then you can um, really work through that and figure out figure out where where it's popping up and where it's not. Mm-hmm. It's hot. I'm trying to stay on track so much because okay. I'm like, we don't have to stay oh, on track. There's so many questions <laughs> later on that I'm like, I want to ask her about parents and relationships with that. So that's coming. I'm staying on track <laughs> because I don't want to miss out anything so uh the next term that gets thrown around that we've already mentioned is narcissist so Mm -hmm. people throw out oh my ex was a narcissist um or whatever it may be and Mm -hmm. i know narcissism is a spectrum is that correct so how do you know exactly when someone's a true narcissist Well, I mean, they probably (laughs) need to be diagnosed for it to be a sure thing um, with (laughs) personality disorder. But I mean, the key traits are grandiosity, need for admiration, lack of empathy, um, being believing that you're special and unique and can only be understood by or should associate with other people that are of high status, requiring excessive admiration, entitlement, they're exploitative. Um, taking advantage of other people for their own gain. They don't have a willingness to recognize or identify with the feelings of others. They they kind of don't care to even, the, it's their version of things or nothing. Um, they're often envious, they're mm-hmm. arrogant, haughty. So that's like, those are all of the diagnostic criteria. And I think you have to meet um, five of nine for it to be diagnosed, um, but it can pop up in many different ways. Like you said, it's on a spectrum. So some people might have like two of those traits or three different traits from someone else. And you might have someone who has narcissistic traits, but they may not be fully meeting criteria for narcissism. But 
it is all arbitrary. We've just decided in the mental health community that five of nine equals narcissistic personality disorder, you know? So um, I think it's valuable to notice when, oh, that's, that's a trait that, that is related to narcissistic personality disorder. Not so you can label and shame them, but so that you, that you can help make sense of what you're experiencing in the relationship. Okay. So can somebody be very arrogant and not be a narcissist? Yes. If they're still capable of empathy, they still root for other people's success. They're not so self-absorbed in their own reality that they're able to show empathy and compassion and um, really root for other people in that way. They're, they're not so blinders on. It's all about me you could still be pretty full of yourself and have that ability. So I think that something interesting about the personality disorders is they're tricky because they're environmental, but also maybe genetic and someone could maybe develop personality disorder based on their experiences, or it might be something that they're born with. So that it's on such a spectrum and we don't know a lot about um, how it happens from if, it, if you're born with it, but we do know what can create it um, through different traumas and experiences in early childhood, those things can definitely contribute to someone developing those traits, often as an early form of self-protection that then becomes maladaptive later in life as it develops. Okay. Are there any very common traumas in childhood that could unlock that? Any kind of childhood abuse, I would say, is a, uh, a good indicator that something on the personality disorder spectrum may be in the future, especially um, for things like borderline personality disorder, if the home and um, if the home is so chaotic, and there's no stability, and your parent is very hot and cold, or there's just a lot of a lot of abuse and trauma in the home that can really affect your mental development and affect the way that you see the world and the way that you see others and the way that you think you need to operate in the world in order to survive. And I think that narcissistic traits may sometimes come from that same root. Um, it, it just depends on the person. And that's what's so hard about these, these situations is there's no like, oh, well, A plus B equals C every time. So it's, it's all different. There's so many factors that can go into it. Um, but we, we know that any kind of abuse and trauma in the home, especially during those early formative years, can really have a bad impact on the development of the brain and the development of the person's relational abilities and emotional abilities and health. Mm -hmm. Is it true, because again, this is something that's I've seen on social media where people say that narcissists won't want to go to therapy yeah, they don't, they don't see that they have a problem. If someone is truly narcissistic, why would they need to go to therapy? I'm not the problem. Everyone else is the problem. I don't, they need to, they, I am right and they are wrong and they need to figure it out. And they don't really, people with, that are narcissists don't have a, a strong want to participate in self-reform. They think they're amazing. They think they're, they have these grandiose ideas. They're very self-important, very entitled. And they, there's often a lot of actually self-hatred and shame underneath all of that. And that's where all of this is coming from, is to kind of hide from that low self-esteem. But they're not usually very interested in 
developing self-awareness and saying, okay, I have a lot of issues. How can I resolve them for myself? How can I change my behavior and how I treat other people? That's usually not what they're interested in. They're usually interested in just getting validated. So if they do go to therapy, it may just be for validation (laughs) and to hear that they're right some more, um, rather than to learn what their part is in the problems that they're experiencing. Right. That's something I've always been curious about because I know there are people who go to therapy and then will only tell the therapist very select information or, or feed them information that may get good feedback or encouragement. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of the same thing? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what's so interesting about therapy, right, is you'll, you might talk to someone and you kind of know what their strengths and weaknesses are. And then they say, well, I went to therapy and my therapist said this. And you can tell like, oh, that means you probably just told your therapy, your therapist this side of the story. (laughs) But I know, because I know everyone else involved in this, there's another side. And it sounds like the therapist didn't get that side, you know. So that's really, really something interesting about therapy is what are your motives for going? Is it so that you can just get validated and be told that you're right and everyone else is horrible? Um, Or are you trying to grow and progress and develop into the next level version of yourself and learn, maybe I have been mistreated, maybe these people are really horrible, but how am I participating in this cycle? And how can I change my participation in it so that I'm not suffering anymore? Because there's always something that you can do even if it's, you know, setting boundaries or learning how to be less reactive or um, learning how to view things from the other person's side so that you can learn how to be less reactive. There's so many steps that you can take, but you have to have that willingness and the desire to learn, all right, what's my part in this? Because I'm, I'm not enjoying this suffering that's happening in this relationship or this situation. So that's why I'm coming versus I'm coming because I'm so upset at this person. I need to be told that I'm right and that I'm valid and all of that. And the tricky thing is too, that first step of just wanting to be validated and hear that that you're right <laughs> or not necessarily that you're right because the therapist probably won't say that, but just that your feelings are valid and that you have been hurt. That's often the first step on the journey to the healing and changing of yourself. You have to get that validation first so that you know that you're not crazy. Kind of comes back to that gaslighting thing. You want to hear that your emotions are valid and that that other person did hurt you and your, your pain is valid. And that has to happen first often before you're ready to say, okay, well, now that I know I'm not crazy, this was hurtful and it's valid that I feel hurt. Now, what can I do to get out of this cycle? Mm, Okay. So from a therapist's point of view, can a therapist Just from hearing one side of the story, so say your client is telling you about their relationship that's seemingly toxic, are you able to, I guess, understand if it's abusive just from that one side? Like, how does the missing piece of that other person's point of view come in like if it's not quite literally like battery like someone's being physically abusive and it's maybe a bit more subtle Mm -hmm. how 
as a therapist, can you kind of like go in there and be like, like subtly hint at, Hey, maybe this is what's happening. Yeah. It's a lot harder when it's just, you're seeing one individual when you're only getting one part of the system and there's many different people involved in the system of the family. It is a lot harder to get a clear picture of what's actually happening, but it's also true that everyone experiences what's happening differently. So if the person is experiencing it as abuse or is feeling really, really hurt, then that's their emotions are valid and that does need to be attended to. It's really difficult to solve a relational problem with just one person in therapy unless that person is willing to be the change in the relationship. Um, whether it's leaving the relationship or changing how they behave in the relationship, um, if, they're, if they're coming wanting to fix a relationship, but they truly believe that it is the other person that is solely at fault or that it is the other person that's causing all of the problems, it's pretty hard to make progress there unless the person just leaves the relationship. Um, and they may need to, if it is an abusive relationship, they may need to, but it's hard to do real work on the, on the dynamic in the system if you only have one piece of it, because everyone has their own experiences and their own perspectives. Mm, interesting. I always was curious, just having been through talk therapy for a number of years, I was always curious because there was one point where I had, it was my husband was seeing uh, the same therapist as me, I was, and then a close friend of ours. And I was always like, it'd be so interesting being the therapist, hearing it from, you know, yeah. the different perspectives when, when it crossed over and like how different the story was just from our own like realities. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the therapist's job to be with their client, you know? So when you're the client, that's whose version we're going with. And we're going to help you work on that from your perspective. So she's not going to bring in what she heard from your friend or your husband because mm -hmm. they're not in the room, right? So it's just about you and we're going to work with you. And you can do a lot of really good work there. It just, um, I would say it's probably more efficient if you can get the whole family in there, but that's hard for a lot of reasons. <laughs> oh yeah. Yep. There's always that quote, what is it? People go to therapy often because the people around them won't go to therapy. Yes. <laughs> I believe that. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, one other term that's kind of connected to narcissism, I guess, is love bombing. And mm. people often use that as, you know, incorrect terms when they first start dating somebody or just again, in general on social media. Yeah. What is love bombing? <laughs> love bombing is what a narcissist will do to initially reel someone in. So they'll be very charming, very generous. Um, they may like suddenly have all of your same interests and have so much in common with you all of a sudden that they, they maybe weren't interested in before, but now they're all about it because they want you and they're just the picture perfect partner for a while and then it switches and i think the reason the reason that term gets misused is because 
love bombing happens before narcissistic abuse. But love bombing can also just look like someone being very, very infatuated at the beginning of a relationship, and it's totally innocent. It's not meant as a manipulative tactic to get someone reeled in so that you can control and abuse them. Um, so that I have seen that thrown around a lot too. And sometimes it may be love bombing if that person later turns out to be ultra controlling and cruel and manipulative and lack empathy and all of that that comes with the narcissism. But if it doesn't come with that, it's not love bombing. That is just naive, you know, infatuation at the beginning of a relationship where people will sometimes, you know, just, oh, well, I just want to be with you and I just love everything about you. And now I care about everything you care about because that's what we do often at the early stage of a romantic relationship. Yeah, I know I've definitely done that with previous relationships where they're interested in something and then I'm like, okay, well, I don't know anything about this, so I should probably learn about it so when they talk about it, I understand. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. And if you're not um, going to participate in narcissistic abuse later, then that doesn't count as love bombing. I think people get excited when they learn these terms in therapy and especially the mental health field is relatively new and especially relational health, like marriage therapy, partner counseling, all of that is pretty new. So people hear these terms and they get excited and want to use them, but it's very nuanced and it's just like a slight difference between gaslighting and disagreeing and a slight difference between love bombing and just being infatuated. Mm -hmm. So really grand gestures like really grand romantic gestures for example mm -hmm. is it really about the intention behind it rather than you know the gesture itself do people with like abusive intentions do they even know at that time that that's what they're doing hmm that's tough if they know what they're doing. I feel like it it's like a subconscious. They may subconsciously mm -hmm. be aware, but I doubt that they have the self-awareness to think, so first I'm going to send them a bunch of expensive gifts, and then once I reel them in, I will start trying to control them. I don't think it's that mapped out and articulated. It's probably more mm -hmm. of a subconscious thing that they do. Um but it's absolutely more about the intention than the gift because someone could have a lot of spare cash and just be a very generous person and maybe gifts is their love language. And so they like to give expensive gifts and they just want to do that to make their partner feel special. That's not the same as someone who's doing it um, to kind of reel in their next <laughs> victim of, of abuse so they can have someone to control and, and serve them. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's interesting you say that's their love language because I I feel as though sometimes with buying gifts, like previous, just this is coming just from my personal experience. Mm -hmm. um, I'll give background to it so it makes a little bit more sense. But I think that was very much like my dad's love language was like giving a lot of things, whether it was like, you know what whatever it might be but there was some kind of like a string attached to it mm -hmm. so coming into personal romantic relationships now when i get like a beautiful big gift 
I'm like, okay, mm. what are the terms and conditions here? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I think gifts is the easiest love language to do that with, you know, because it requires the least amount of vulnerability and emotional um, expression, right? Because the other ones, physical touch, words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, those all require a little more vulnerability, a little more effort, but you can swipe a credit mm -hmm. card and send a gift. So I think that that love language in particular is the easiest one to use manipulatively and to use without authenticity. Mm -hmm. Something I just thought of just now, is that typical of like older generations because they're on, like, they're not as in touch with their emotions as much because I know in my my dad's going into his early 70s and so I know typically of his generation it was very much just like bottle it up don't show your emotions men don't have feelings all of that sort of thing so like giving a gift is like a really easy way for him to be like I care yeah yeah that's really interesting I haven't noticed I don't know if that you know statistically is the most common um love language for that generation or more common than it is now. I don't know, but I do think that that tracks with what we have seen, you know, the older generations, the pick up, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, rub some dirt in it, keep going. Don't show weakness. Don't show vulnerability. Um, that would make sense for sure. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm so interested to see how the next generations progress with just where, I guess, emotional intelligence and emotional regulation and all that goes, having that new generation coming in as parents and seeing how, you know, therapy is very much encouraged now, especially my generation, everyone's, I swear, everyone's in therapy <laughs> and they're, they're open about it and they sort of like talking about it and learning about it. So I just am so interested to see how that like trajectory pans out Yeah. Uh, for, yeah, for the next couple of generations. Yes. I'm so excited about that. We already have so much information that's so available for people. When I was dating my husband, we read seven principles for making marriage work by wait that was Gottman yeah by John Gottman and his wife um and that was so helpful for us and I've given that out to so many friends as they got married to read it with their partners and they they loved it too and said it was really helpful and it's we have all of these tools now to learn how to be more emotionally intelligent to learn how to communicate better and like we talked about earlier with the accidental gaslighting there are things that we naturally do in relationships that are really unhealthy and that contribute to them being filled with resentment or um, much more filled with conflict than they need to be. And now it's so great. We have so much information and research on what actually works in relationships and what doesn't work. And it can be just so helpful just in my own relationship, reading those kinds of books, reading Hold Me Tight by Sue Johnson was another one who's the founder of Emotionally Focused Therapy, that just totally changed the way I view relationships. And it changed my whole paradigm. Like everything shifted for me when I read that book because I learned how to see what was happening below the surface. When people, you know, would act out with anger and snap at each other, I would always wonder like, but what's, why are they doing that? That seems so, so random, but it's to cover 
the hurt. It's to cover the sadness that's happening underneath and learning those kinds of things and bringing those tools into your relationships. I'm very excited to see what happens in just marriage culture for the next couple of generations. I think it'll be really good. I'm optimistic. <laughs> I know I'm optimistic too. I feel as though there's much more or many more options now. I feel like monogamous relationships, marriage, I feel like there's a lot of different like nuance to how people approach relationships and it always makes me wonder just because this is from my own personal relationship with marriage and being married and I always wonder is how much is this like monogamous relationship uh stereotype wedding two people lasting forever all of that how much is that like really inherently in us as humans that we really just want our other person to spend the rest of our lives with or how much is that just either societal programming or maybe disney movies okay biologically you could say that men are more incentivized to procreate with as many women as possible and women are incentivized to not do that because pregnancy is dangerous and you need um someone to be your protector in the evolutionary like you know hundreds of years back thousands of years back women were more vulnerable and being pregnant and having a baby is vulnerable. So we are not incentivized to procreate with as many men as possible. So there's that side of it. And then there's the societal development of now monogamies, what we do. And that seems to be effective for most people. I don't know. I think that's a really, it's hard to say what, what is society? What is us? Um, everyone's different, but I think it, it's really more about how you operate in whatever relationship you're in, what, what habits you're bringing in, how you treat the other person, how they treat you. Um, are you able to fulfill your life dreams with each other? Do you respect each other? All of that. And yeah, I, d I don't have an answer on the, where is it, is monogamy biologically inherent or is it societal? That's, that's a difficult question to answer. Because in ancient times, there was a lot of polygamy, right? Men would have multiple wives and there wasn't as much polyandry. There has been polyandry in certain areas of the world, but it's usually been polygamy in ancient times and then monogamy for the last very, very long time. So it also maybe has changed as society has changed. We don't have a need for, women are not as dependent on men, so we don't have a need for as much of that, oh, well, we have the protector over these vulnerable women with their babies, you know, that has kind of phased out. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought up polygamy because polygamy really fascinates me as a concept in general. I, this is definitely me <laughs> just projecting how I would be in a polygamous relationship if I want to be in one. But how, how do you know if it's somebody who's just really scared of commitment and so wants to have like multiple options in case someone abandons them? And then how, what is, 
there's that version and then there's the real true i am you know the oh, I, I am poly like through and through yeah. that's all i want yeah that's hard that's hard to talk about because it's a very sensitive topic for people you know so what i will say is um it maybe depends on what the person is wanting out of their relationship and um David Schnarch, who wrote uh, a book on sexual therapy, he was a, one of the pioneering sex therapists, talked about this, that if you are in a monogamous relationship, the exclusivity of it is what allows you to have the depth that you can have. You can have a very surface level, shallow monogamous relationship, but because you're not bringing in all these other people, that exclusivity there's inherently some more intimacy there and you can develop that intimacy to a really deep, beautiful level. And if you choose not to have that exclusivity and that intimacy, just functionally, it's not possible to have the same level of intimacy and depth with more people as it is with one person. So just like, you know, that, you know, people who maybe have 30 friends that they hang out with, but they're not having the same super deep midnight chats with all 30 of those friends as someone else might have with their four close friends that they hang out with all the time. So just logically, you know, you, we have a limited amount of time. We have a little bit of little limited, excuse me, limited amount of emotional capacity and we have to choose where we put it. And if you're spreading it out among more people, you may have more connections, but they're not going to be, or they may not be as, sorry, they don't have the potential to be as intimate and deep as a monogamous relationship. Um, and that's just math, but some people may not be looking for that one deep connection and to them it's more important to have multiple connections. My personal thinking is that that must be tied to some fear of, vulner of that level of vulnerability with just one person because why do you need to spread it out? Well, it's in case this goes wrong, I've got this over here <laughs> is seems to be what the undercurrent of that may be. Um, and I don't know, I, I do have a hard time thinking that I like going back to the polygamy thing. I would hate that. I would hate every single part of that. <laughs> and it's hard for me to think of like true reasons that are my highest self that would want to participate in that. Um, so yeah, I don't have a, a solid answer because I also don't want to speak for people who um, mm -hmm. are polyamorous, but my initial instinct has often been that seems like it's a, a way to protect themselves from being too dependent on one source of validation and intimacy. But I'm happy to be corrected okay, on that, that if anyone who's hunch. polyamorous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> happy to be corrected, but I haven't seen... I haven't seen it um, where I haven't, I haven't interacted with anyone where I thought that that wasn't what was going on underneath it all, but I have a limited exposure as mm -hmm. well. My exposure really came from when I moved to LA and it's kind of trendy here, mm -hmm. um, especially in the bi community um, because I am from Sydney in Australia, no one ever talks about polygamy <laughs> at all. I can't think of one person that I know that's polygamous. Uh, 
at all. And then I came to LA and I was like, oh, wow, like friends of friends or I don't know, just people who I'd meet in passing and it would come up in conversation or whatever. And I was like, I feel like it's, they're really trendy or there's an overarching common denominator here of like, I don't know, abandonment wounds or whatever it might be. But the yeah. reason why I brought up the bi community is because I'm by myself. And so I noticed this with other bi women that would be in relationships of sorts where it would be like one man, one woman to try and mm. fulfill their needs. And I'm curious, mm. I just don't know what to think of that as like a general yeah. dynamic. Yeah, we're in a really interesting time right now. It's kind of like a second wave sexual revolution where people are um, really questioning every rule that has been put in place in society over sexual partners and relationships. And, and so everyone's experimenting and they're testing it out. Like, well, do I believe in this rule that's been placed on me? Do I believe in this one? And they're kind of doing a trial by error kind of a thing to see what works and what doesn't. And um, a lot of it has been really freeing for people who are, you know, gay or bi who felt like they couldn't be their authentic selves and now they can, but there also is absolutely part of it. That's like, Oh, they're bi and they're bi and they're, they're doing this polyamory thing. I wonder what that's like. Maybe I'll try it out. So there may be some experimentation as well of people seeing like, okay, well, I'm not sure if I buy into the monogamy thing, I'll test it out. Let's see how it goes <laughs> not being monogamous and see how that feels. And um, so I do think there's a lot of experimentation happening right now and it's pretty new and we don't know if it's long, long lasting or not. But I, I absolutely think that there could be different motivations for some people and some people may be just wanting to experiment. Um, some people may be trying to l decrease their own vulnerability and protect themselves. So if I'm relying on two or three people, that feels a lot safer and less scary than me choosing one person that's gonna be my you know, heart and soul in my relationship. From the bi perspective, we have also evolved our definition and expectations of marriage to a point where we expect our romantic partner to basically fill every emotional need that we have. And that's not fair or possible, really. We need friends. We need other people in our lives to fill certain areas of our emotional and relational needs. So I think part of that might be, well, I like this. I like masculine energy in my life and I like feminine energy. And so they're choosing to try to have a romantic relationship with both instead of, well, I can get this feminine energy from my partner maybe, but I can have these male friends and foster these relationships with men in my life and that can fill the need for the male energy. But instead they're thinking, well, let me try a romantic relationship with both. And they may be trying to put too many of their expectations um, too many of their emotional needs to be met by romantic relationships as opposed to other relationships. Interesting. So if a monogamous couple went poly, can is it often, because I've heard this too much where it's like once they do that, they just can't go back to monogamy, like mm -hmm. the relationship suffers or the relationship doesn't hit. Yeah. And I'm curious as to why that is. 
I think couples who are monogamous, who have made a commitment and a promise to each other to just be with each other, who then decide to reevaluate that, basically like alter the conditions of their initial agreement um, and bring in someone else or be polyamorous or whatever. I think it's often a reaction to other things that are going wrong in the relationship and they're trying to put a band-aid on it by saying it's it's mm. probably just because we need more sexual variety or it's probably just because you know we we're too bored with each other we need we need some excitement we need to bring this in and that's usually not the actual problem in the relationship there's a lot of other stuff that's maybe a lot harder to solve and a lot harder to talk about that they're not wanting to get into or maybe they don't know how to fix it so they think this could be a way to kind of take the pressure off the relationship but by that point, they're not addressing the problems in the relationship. They're trying to solve it by doing something else. And those, those initial problems, which were why they were starting to brainstorm ideas to fix the relationship, those initial problems are still there and they're going to get worse and they're growing. So I think that's probably what's happening when couples all of a sudden decide they want to try polyamory. Um, when they were committed to each other, I think there's usually a lot more going on in that relationship that they're, they're not addressing. Yeah, I saw you did a video on swinging or swinger, and it was a similar concept to that of, well, what is the actual underlying, you know, tension or motivation behind that? And yeah. do you think that that is something that like swinging is in general? I feel like it's an older generational thing. I don't know anyone who swings <laughs> in my generation, but is that just doomed in general i would say yes i have never heard of it being successful i do know there are some gay couples some male gay couples specifically who can swing or mm -hmm. have some some side side things going on and they seem to be able to keep it together men and women are very different and i think there may be something about the male gay dynamic that make space for that in a way that can still keep the relationship together. And maybe it does come back to that biological, you know, the men are more biologically in general, they're more likely to want to be with more partners. Whereas women, we want the safety of being with one person. Um, so I have not heard of any monogamous heterosexual couples swinging long-term and having a successful, fulfilling marriage. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Uh, gay couples would be able to successfully do that. Yeah, depending <laughs> I on know their motivation. It too. would be just so messy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I could never. Yeah, exactly. I could never. <laughs> I definitely think the if it was to ever be something that would happen, I don't think I could handle somebody else doing it. I think I'd have to be the one to do it just so I'm like, I don't know. That well, might sound think... pretty weird and messed up, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's another reason why it's why it often fails. It's not usually both people in the couple independently thought of this and both want to do it I would say it's usually more driven by one person than the other ones trying to just go along with it to please their partner or whatever um but I'm gonna switch gears because I 
I'm aware of time, but I want to dive into parents um, and the topic around childhood and parents and all of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So to begin with, what is the difference between like a mother wound and a father wound from childhood? Oh, well, the relationships that we have with our fathers versus our mothers are very different inherently. You know, we are often spending so much more time with our mothers growing up and we're looking to them for nurturing and for acceptance and affection. And from our fathers, we want those things too, but we're also looking for um, guidance and it's just a little bit of a different dynamic. So I think that um, the, the expectations of the relationship can impact what the wounds look like in adulthood. And I know that it can often make the, the mother wounds feel so much more personal because this is the one person that was supposed to be there for me and really accept me and nurture me. You know, you, you're raised with your mom um, being that, that source of sustenance and nourishment in so many ways. So that really plays into your um, issues with mother relationships and then with father relationships it can it also depends on the gender of the child I think because boys are probably really looking for that validation of yeah you're a man from from their dads they're looking for um, kind of that coming of age acceptance and approval from their fathers and girls may be looking for it in a slightly different way so the gender roles really come into play with mother and father wounds I think Mm. So will they play out, like, for example, um, within the same gender? So say you have a father wound, will that play out only in your male relationships or can that play out with like females as well? Does it have to be masculine? No, no. I think it can play out with females as well. Um, if you were just invalidated by either parent, growing up or taught that your emotions are silly or taught that you are responsible for keeping everyone in the house happy by either parent, then you're going to feel that in your adulthood. You're going to take that with you into adulthood unless you are really intentional about resolving it and unlearning those lessons that you learned so early in life. I think more I meant with with your relationship with your father versus your relationship with your mother, you have different expectations and ideas about what you're wanting from each parent. Um, But as far as the lessons that you learn in general, relationally, there can be wounds from either parent that you then take into your romantic relationships, your friendships. And it's because those relationships shape how you view the world. They shape your role in the world. They shape your role in your future relationships. That's the first experience that you have um, being a part of a family system and, being in an intimate relationship with other people, your parents are your first experience with that. So whether it's safe or not for you to be yourself, whether it's safe or not for you to be vulnerable, um, to show affection, to get your needs met, all of those things are really, really shaped by your initial experiences with your parents. And you can absolutely resolve them in adulthood. You can unlearn things, you can relearn new things, but that is your blueprint. Mm hmm. Yeah, for for when I don't know if this is just because of my experience growing up being female, but I feel like the daddy or dad wound always gets thrown out as daddy issues. Like, 
a woman wanting male attention, maybe in more the sexual sense. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the stereotypical dad wound. Mm-hmm. How does the mother wound for a female show up? Maybe stereotypically or very obviously. Um, it could show up in codependent female friendships. So if you didn't have the mom mm-hmm. that was validating and accepting you and if, and showing affection to you, you may overly attach to some of your girlfriends and trying to fill that that same need through your female relationships and have unrealistic expectations of your female relationships. Um, so that's one way. And then people also, you know, it's on a spectrum. So some some women who have quote unquote daddy issues who never got that male approval and attention may be looking to older men, looking to any man to kind of fill that need, or they may totally shut themselves off. And the same can happen from a mother wound. Um, just to protect yourself, you've learned that that it's not safe to be vulnerable, that it's not safe to put yourself out there. And so you just kind of become avoidant and avoid any kind of intimacy or uh, position where you could be hurt. Mm-hmm. And does it show up the same way for men too? For men, I think it's often more likely that they will go avoidant because societally they're um, expected to be less vulnerable. They're expected to be less dependent on other people and to be more um, self-sufficient. And so I think it's it's probably more likely that they'll go the avoidant route and just cut off from any kind of intimacy or vulnerability with someone else. That's too dangerous. So I'm just going to keep these walls up. Is that the same for the father wound for men? That's an interesting one. I'm some men may um, really try hard to get other male approval by doing things that are traditionally masculine. You know, if it's motorsports or fighting mm-hmm. or getting tattoos, they're they're maybe seeking that male validation from any man that will give it to them, or they may. Uh, try to attach like a friend's dad or someone else who can fill that role for them. Um, it's not always maladaptive, but some of these behaviors, if they're participating in risky behavior and, you know, doing dangerous sports and trying to sleep with as many women as, as possible to impress their male friends, that could be kind of a, an expression of that dad wound. Oh boy, I can think of so many people. <laughs> it's pretty common. I'm just thinking of like all these guys yeah from like high school and yeah yeah and that comes back to that generational you know the men haven't always been super vulnerable and affectionate and especially to boys boys still need that they need their dad's approval and affection if they don't get it if they feel like they're never living up to their dad's expectations or they're not getting that approval then they may try to seek it from other men by doing these hyper masculine things to try to fit in yeah, expectations is definitely a big one. I think, uh, I know personally, a lot of my close friends and myself included, parents have an expectation of what they were going to turn out to to do and be. And that's very common in LA as well, because a lot of people come to LA and their parents may not have been super supportive of it because of the, you know, the many a stereotype of Hollywood or whatever it is. Um, 
how does one, I guess, repair that expectation? So say a parent is like, oh, I, you know, I always wanted you to be a doctor or I always wanted you to be a lawyer or whatever it is. And they're still holding on to, like the parent is still holding on to that, that expectation that their kid is just not going to meet because they're not interested in that field or whatever it may be, those expectations that the child is never going to be what the parent wants them to be. Yeah. Are you speaking about healing it from the kid's side or from the parent's side? Mm, I guess both, really. Yeah. That's, that's where the concept of differentiation comes in, where you have to acknowledge like what is in your realm of control and what is outside of your realm of control and um what is your self and your within your boundaries of what you get to make decisions about and what is within someone else's boundaries of what they get to make decisions about so from the kids perspective they may need to have a conversation with their parent and calmly and lovingly talk about, you know, I know you wanted this for me, but that's not what I want. And I'm pursuing what I really want. And I'm living according to my values. And this is, this is what that looks like right now. And I hope that you can support and respect that. And if not, unfortunately, you know, I'm, I'm still going to keep doing it. This is what I want. It's my life. And I'm an adult. Now I get to make these decisions and I would love to have your love and support along the way. Um, and I hope you can give it to me. So from the kid's side, they could have that kind of a conversation with their parent. And from the parent's side, they have to let go of the reins a little bit and acknowledge that their child is an adult now. They get to make their own decisions and it's not within their control to make those decisions for their child. So they kind of have to renegotiate the their role as parent. And that's difficult because when you're raising young kids, you do have a lot more control over their lives. You can make a lot of those decisions for them. And then as they enter adolescence and into adulthood, your power over your child significantly diminishes. And so then it, it's about relationship over control. And the parent has to make the choice of, do I want the relationship or do I want to keep trying to control my child? Because it's going to drive the kid away if you're so focused on trying to control them and, and project your dreams onto them it's not going to heal. It's not going to be very edifying. It's not going to create a healthy, trusting relationship between the parent and child. So the parent really has to come to peace with their role as a supportive, loving co-adult, as opposed to someone who's still guiding them along the way. And it kind of becomes a thing where the parent can now offer advice when the child asks for it, instead of trying to force them to accept the parent's perspective and wishes mm -hmm. and what if the parent never comes to that piece because I know a lot of parents I don't know if it's just because of where I grew up and where I was raised but the school for example the school that I went to was very academic mm -hmm. so parents had huge expectations on kids um to perform really well and it was very competitive and it was always talking about people's or the kids potential like living up to your potential you have so much talent and you should use it and 
And then you leave school and so many of my friends were just like exhausted. They didn't feel as though they had anything left, you know, to give. And their desire and potential was just to like cruise and just live life. And their parents struggled with that because they could, the parents would see like, oh, but you have so many talents. Why are you not using them? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that's really hard. I mean, in the end, still, the parent can only control themselves. They can't control their child. Um, Depending on the relationship, you know, and and depending on that child, there may be room to have conversations about, well, is the child not pursuing a certain path because they really don't want it? Or are they just burned out? And I think the most important thing is for the parent to communicate unconditional love and acceptance to their child and to not make it be about, well, you're only acceptable if blank, 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 and have like removing the Mm -hmm. conditions. Cause then there's, if that's off the table, then there's room to have conversations about, well, can, what are your actual goals and how can I support you in those? And is this kind of just a quarter life crisis where you're trying to figure out what you want and you need the extra support from your parents of, you know, helping you figure it out? Or are you making this choice because this is what's in line with your highest values and your goals and then I can support you in that so I think as long as the child feels that safety of unconditional love and acceptance then there's more room to have conversations that can invite more guidance or exploration because kids don't have it all figured out when they're 18 and graduate high school they may still want that guidance from their parents they just don't want to feel controlled they don't want to feel like the decision is being made for them or that they're the love and acceptance from their parent is conditional upon what career they go into next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 18 is so like, I think back to when I'm 18, I was like, I didn't know anything. And I was like expected to choose a college degree. Like <laughs> yeah. I didn't know what I was going to do. Yes. Yes. And that those years, especially 18, 19, 20, it's so hard because you think you have everything figured out. You don't think you need any help from any adults in your life because you're an adult now, but you do actually still need that guidance. You just need to feel, I think, respected and empowered and to feel like you have your own autonomy within that. And that's where I think parents can misstep is if they're still treating the child like the child is 12 instead of an adult that, that you're, you're an advisor to now instead of the parent. (laughs) Mm Hmm. I'm an advisor. I like that one. I'm going to have to use that. <laughs> um, okay. I could talk to you for hours, but I you know, <laughs> want to be respectful of your time as well. So <laughs> there was a question in the relationship when we're talking relationships that I want to ask just as a fun one to end with, because I did forget to ask you. And that was... Um, how often should couples be having sex? Like sex is a very taboo <laughs> subject that doesn't get talked about enough. And yeah. I saw this on your Instagram and I was like, I have to ask her about this as a therapist. Like, is there a certain number for everyone that's like a quota or is it just very case by case? It is completely case by case. And yeah, that is one of the most popular questions. (laughs) Everyone wants to know if they're doing it right. Everyone wants to know if their sex life is how it's supposed to be or if it's broken. And it's so funny because it's, it's, 
it's good if you're happy with it and it's broken if you're unhappy with it. And there, what, what needs to be talked about more, I think, is mismatched um, levels of sexual desire. And there's almost always in every relationship, mm. a high desire partner and a low desire partner. And it, they may not be high or low on like the universal scale, but in their relationship, one is going to be wanting sex more often and one is going to be wanting sex less often to some degree or another. And that is very tricky to deal with, but it's really about um, not placing the whole weight of your partner's value of you on how often they want to have sex with you. If you're the high desire partner and if you're the low desire partner, what, how can you feel desired and kind of turned on so that you want to have sex more often but you may not want to have it as much as your high desire partner and you don't have to. So both partners need to mitigate expectations. Like if, if one's here and one's here, you should probably be having sex about here. <laughs> so maybe the lower desire partner is, is needing to give a little bit more. Of course, if you are not in the mood, you should never, you know, force yourself to have sex if you don't want to. But if you're the high desire partner, you also shouldn't expect your low desire partner to meet your sexual needs every single time. So it's about expectations and what you're making it mean when the partner approaches you or rejects you. And I've heard a lot of people say, you know, they feel like they're just being used um, from their high desire partner because they don't want to have sex and they feel like their partner is always ready to go and it's frustrating for them. And they frame it that way instead of, oh, how amazing that my husband finds me so desirable. He wants to have sex with me all the time but I don't always want to have sex all the time. So let's talk about it. And, you know, in a lighthearted way of like, I love you. I want to be with you. I want to have sex with you, but maybe not quite this many times per week. <laughs> Whereas from the low or from the <laughs> high desire perspective, if their wife is always shutting them down, then that can make them feel rejected. Oh, my wife doesn't love me. She doesn't think I'm desirable. She doesn't want to have sex with me. And I'm using male and women because traditionally most often men are more high desire, but mm -hmm. it also absolutely happens the other way too, um, quite often. But if the man can instead acknowledge, it's not that she doesn't love me. It's not that she doesn't feel attraction to me. She has a lower sex drive. And that doesn't mean that I'm broken. And it doesn't mean our relationship is broken. And the, if the low desire partner can communicate that to the high desire, desire partner, and it's really just all about communication and expectations, then you can find a happy medium where both partners are pretty happy with how things are going. Of course, the person who wants to have sex five times a day may never get to have sex five times a day, but that's that give and take um, within the relationship. And it can still be a really, really fulfilling, robust sex life if you just have those open communications. But there's, there's no one right answer. Some couples are happy to have sex every single day. Some couples are happy to have sex once every two weeks. And it really, or, or within, I don't want people to think, oh, okay, so it's between that and that. It's whatever works for you in your relationship. <laughs> yeah, uh, damn, I was kind of hoping for like a number because this answer. Me too. <laughs> when like, I learned about I this. I want to know, was, what is I the... know. When yeah. I learned about this, I took the, the sex therapy class. I was like, great, I'm finally going to get the number. And no, there's no number. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, no, that's, I mean, it's very typical, especially after the honeymoon phase, if you're having a lot of sex and, and then the female's sort of interest 
diminishes and often the male, again, this is stereotyping, but the male's desire just stays either the same or goes a little bit down, but it's still higher. Yeah. Just as a caveat, if you're having sex all the time mm-hmm. and it's kind of being used as a replacement for having conversations, like if that has become your only way to connect with your partner, then that may be a problem. And similarly, if you're never having sex or you're only having sex when someone begs for it every six months, then that may be a problem too, right? So it's really about the quality of the relationship and what the sex is meaning in the relationship. That should indicate to you how healthy your level is. Is for long-term relationships, whether you're married or not, like if you've been in relationship for an extensive period of time, uh, it naturally, again, I'm not speaking for everyone, but naturally... (laughs) the number or the frequency to which you have sex goes down. Mm -hmm. Um, We talked about swinging before, often when people are trying to reignite the spark. What other techniques are there to do that instead of swinging? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because often people do think, oh, well, the the problem is I've been having sex with the same person for 20 years. And so I need Mm -hmm. more variety. But there's ways to introduce novelty and variety and excitement into your sexual relationship with the same person, whether it's having sex at a different location, trying different positions, turning it into a game. They have all these games now you can get that are like truth or dare and different things where you can make it fun and exciting. There's toys. Um, There's a lot of ways to introduce novelty and variety into the sexual relationship without bringing in other people. You know, you can role play you can meet at a restaurant come separately from different places so that you feel like you're going on a date instead of it being you got ready together and then you drove in the same car to the restaurant you know you can do different things um from a very like small scale to really high levels of like excitement and variety to introduce that into the relationship um and i think having new experiences together is something that really ignites that when you're experiencing something new together that can reintroduce that feeling of of newness and excitement that you don't have in your everyday repetitive life so going on trips together you know doing a different kind of date that you don't normally do together just sorry really courting your partner courting your partner and treating it like how Mm -hmm. you did when you were earlier dating prioritizing each other and finding ways to spice things up in those ways can be really helpful and ignite that spark again by the lingerie whatever it is (laughs) i like that one of going to a restaurant but separately like meeting there as if you are dating like i didn't even think of that concept but i was like my husband and i would always just drive together why wouldn't we drive together we're going to the same place we live together we're gonna come home to the same place but yeah. going separately and meeting there make does make it more exciting yes yes it ki- it's kind of fun kind of takes you back to those days of dating and then you know your husband didn't see you go from the bathrobe and slippers to the full mer- makeup and heels <laughs> you just showed up that way so it, that can be fun and say vice versa. If he's just in a suit and you didn't watch him change into it from his PJs, then that can kind of add a little bit more spiciness. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely going to have to try that one. Um, well, again, I don't want to take up the rest of your day, even though I could pick your brain for hours. So um, 
Is there anything that you want to plug or promote or anything you're working on that's coming up? Yeah, um, just follow on social media. I have an Instagram and a TikTok. My TikTok is really focused around um, taking examples from the media and finding really helpful lessons on mental health or relational health. Usually it's focused on relational health. Um, so right now I'm doing a series on Bachelor in Paradise. If you watch that show, um, I'll take little clips from the show and talk about what we can learn about relationships from those interactions. And then I have an Instagram as well. It's just Elizabeth Wing underscore MFT on both platforms, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I saw that you were doing that for that show and I was going to suggest, can you please do Love Island UK? <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> yeah, I've had a couple of requests for that. And then the Selena Gomez documentary, people want me to talk about um yeah yeah that one i haven't watched it yet but i'm definitely eager to see that but uh yeah love island accidentally got addicted to that show earlier this year and that would be a real good one to know i've heard great things i'll i'll definitely check it out that could be my next one paradise is gonna end soon so that'll be perfect Season season eight and season five, I I would say are the best. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for the tip. I'll check those of out. Of course. <laughs> um, well, it was so, so, so interesting to talk with you. I'm so glad that you had the time today to chat. Um, and yeah, thank you again. Thank you so much. I loved getting to meet you and chat with you. I love what you're doing. You're doing an amazing job. I love, love the podcast, love your social media. So thank you so much. I'm so, so excited to have been invited today.